So we're continuing with 1 Peter. So we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 13 through 21 tonight in a study I'm calling Our Reasonable Response. Now, it's not a foreign concept, as we all know, that certain positions require moral behavior, right? Think about the position of our, of, of our president, right? We all expect the president to have moral behavior. A respected person in ministry, such as Billy Graham, I mean, right, he's under like the microscope kind of thing. And everybody expects that a person like Billy Graham or Franklin Graham would have moral behavior because of their position of who they are. The royal family in England, everybody expects them to have, you know, a, you know, a righteous um, behavior. Sadly, being a, a, a kid of the 90s, I can't help but to think of that movie, King Ralph, you know, with, with John Goodman, you know, he, here he is, you know, the, the whole royal family dies and they have to find, the, the, you know, the line of the king, and there's John Goodman, you know, some, you know, low-life American kind of thing, doesn't, doesn't represent the, the royal family well. And so that's what happens when it looks like, you know, that's really what it looks like when a person does not represent um, their position. Now, you and I, we might not feel like we're, you know, that we have an important position as pilgrims pass into this world. But Peter tells us and encourages us and says that we do. Notice the things that we have seen so far in this chapter. We've been called elect. God loves us. Also, we have been told that we are begotten again to a living hope. We've been given an inheritance that is eternal, that is reserved in heaven specifically for us who are kept by the power of God. This evening in our passage, we're going to get some more insight into our position as believers. For example, in verse 14, we're told that we are children of God. Also, we're told in verse 17 that we are able to call upon God, who is our Father. And so God is our Father. We have this relationship with Him. And then in verses 18 to 20, we learn that we are the redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, who was foreordained before the foundations of the world. So this is a pretty important position that we have as believers. The God of the heavens and the earth is saying, hey, you're elect, you're redeemed, you're my children. You can, call up, you, know, you can call upon me as father. It's pretty important. With that important position comes a required response of behavior, and Peter explains that required response in verses 15 and 16. Look what he said. He said, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So as the redeemed children of God, we have a proper response, which is to walk in holiness. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at a, a number of responses that you and I are supposed to have as a result of our position. Last week, we talked about our hope. Actually, two weeks ago, we talked about our hope and the response of blessing God. This week, we're going to talk about holiness. Next week, we're going to talk about love. The following, we're going to talk about unity in the body. And so we have all these different responses, but it all begins with our great salvation in Jesus Christ. So in concerning holiness tonight, we're going to focus on three things. First, our preparation for holy living. Second, our example for holy living. And third, the motivation for holy living. So first, in verse 13, we see our preparation for holy living. Peter says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word therefore, as we all know, uh, sums up what was previously said. So in other words, Peter is saying, because we're born again, because we have this, inter this eternal inheritance reserved in heaven for us, 
we're to gird up the loins of our mind. Now, it's interesting that Peter does not begin with the appearance of the believer concerning holiness, but he begins with the mind in the act of the will. He says we're to gird up the loins of our mind. The phrase gird up carries the idea of activity, and it's an illustration of the first century clothing that they used to wear. You know, when they would want to do business or, or run or, or do any kind of work, you know, they wore the long robes, so they would gird it up and they would tie it so they could move freely. In our day, we would say, it's time to roll up your sleeves. It's time to take action. And that's what Peter is saying here. We as a believer need to make holy living a mindset. It begins with a conscious decision to walk in holiness. And notice Peter does not say anything about you know, just a, uh, you know, an elite few living holy, but he says everybody, because all believers, because we have the Holy Spirit living in us, have the ability to walk a holy life with God. You know, often we think of a hierarchy in church, and, and really that, a lot of that comes from the tradition of men established in the church, you know, different traditions, and they think, okay, well, you got the priests up here, and they're holy, you know, then you have people who are kind of holy-ish, and you have people who are just kind of born into it, and they're, you know, they're not really holy at all, but, but, but they go to church kind of thing. But the Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Bible teaches that every believer in Jesus Christ is called to walk a holy life. And those who are called in the ministry just have a different gifting than you and I do. You know? and, so, and so we um, all need to walk a holy life. It's not just for an elite few who have to try real hard. Now, the way that Peter wrote, as I said, assumes that because of the indwelling spirit, everybody is enabled and is also called to walk this holy life. Now, the proper mindset begins with action, but it also begins with living a, a, a life of thinking soberly. Now, to think, um, to think sober means to be steadfast in our thinking. It means to use self-control in what we allow to dwell in our minds. Now, this might come as a shock, but because the Holy Spirit is renewing our mind and we have the Spirit living in us as believers, we can actually say no to the things that are in our head. You know, we can actually take our thoughts captive, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He says, hey, man, take every thought captive unto the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. Basically, he says, man, when that thought comes in your head, don't think about it. Say, no, I'm not going to think about that right now. Peter is protecting us from intoxicating thoughts that would seek to lead us astray. Now, the mind seems like a small thing when talking about holy living, but it's really where holy living comes from. The thinking that it's all about behavior really is the fallacy of the Pharisees. And Jesus corrected them on that. They thought, okay, it's all about the rituals I do. It's all about washing the outside of the cup, and it's all about, you know, dividing all the little seeds and things like that. And Jesus says, no, it begins with the heart. Adultery, fornication, all these things, it comes from outflow of the heart. The heart needs to be regenerated. The mind needs to be transformed. And then holy life comes from there. So it begins with the mind. It begins with the heart. Satan understood this, which is why he attacked Eve's mind in the Garden of Eden. He began placing doubts in Eve's mind. Did God really say that? Wait, I think God's holding back from me. I think God's being mean. You know, I think God's, you know, he doesn't really want you to, you know, know as much as him kind of thing. He placed doubts in Eve's mind. It was an intoxication to get her away from thinking soberly about what God really told her to do and which was to obey his word. And she had the power to do that because she was innocent. Intoxicating thoughts are things like lack of contentment, bitterness, discouragement, temptation, apathy. All these things are things that come into the believer's mind. 
We don't have to be shocked when they do because we live in a fallen world. We have an adversary. But when these things come into our mind, we, you know, we need to think clearly about these things and we need to reject them. Now, rather than dwell on these things, which are intoxicating, we need to set our mind, as Paul said, on things above. That's what we learned about on Sunday. We need to realize our position in Christ, which is seated in the heavens, and then we need to set our minds upon those things. We need to live with the assurance that one day you and I are going to be glorified with the Lord. And that's what Peter addresses here. We're to rest our hope fully upon the grace of Jesus Christ, which is going to be revealed. Now, to rest in hope means to live with that absolute assurance that one day we're going to be glorified with the Lord. One day we're going to rule and reign with Jesus, and it's without a doubt Jesus Christ is going to come back and dwell upon this earth, literally, in his second coming. And we're going to rule and reign with him in his kingdom. Now, setting our minds on the coming of Christ is a good way to be prepared for holy living, and the Apostle John would give a big amen to that because he wrote that in his epistle. 1 John 3, 2 through 3 says, Beloved, now we're children of God, our position. And he, and he has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so prophecy, specifically the hope of the fact that Jesus is going to come back, doesn't just, you know, it's not for the purpose of entertaining us or for argument, but it's practical encouragement for holy living. You know, a lot of times people today in the church just think, oh man, we just forget prophecy. You know, we just need to dwell upon the now. But all of the apostles and everybody in the Bible says, no, you need to dwell upon Christ's coming and the fact that you're going to be glorified with him because that is going to how, that's going to produce holy living in your life. All these guys were all literalists. They all believed in literal futuristic prophecy and it transformed and changed their lives. It gave them hope and it'll do the same for us. You see, we're on a pilgrimage to this life. The valley is a good example of that. It's dry and hot, right? But we're looking for those rivers of, of living water, you know, in the city of God that we read about in Revelation. And as we set our mind on things above, it will give us hope to live holy until the day it purifies us. Now, second, verses 14 through 16, we see our example for holy living. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. So the believer in Jesus, because we're a child of God, has a responsibility and, as I said, the ability by the indwelling spirit to live holy. Now, while all this sounds real doctrinal, it's very practical. Because I know you as well as I do, we want to please our Father, right? We want to all hear those words as, as he said to Jesus, you know, that he was pleased with them. And as Jesus was able to say, I'm always able to do those things which please the Father. And the way that we do that is by living a holy life. That is how we please God, as obedient children. These are things that, that please God. We need to follow Christ's example. Now, this verse illustrates well the fact that you and I as believers have a fallen nature, even though we're born again. Yes, we're children of God and dwelt by the Spirit, but no, we are not perfect, nor will we be perfect until we get to heaven. We still have an evil propensity to sin, which we call the flesh, and we live in a fallen world which is controlled by Satan and his demons. And so this is all really the backdrop to Peter's encouragement to us to live a holy life. Think about the context. Here he's writing to these believers. They're scattered from their homelands. They're in the midst of suffering and, and persecution. As we, 
as we're gonna read about later on in the book, people think they're crazy because they don't live in sin anymore and go out and party with them, but they're trying to follow the Lord. People, you know, people hate them. You know, Peter writes them and says, hey guys, be encouraged, live a holy life. To walk in obedience to the Father means that we must daily guard our minds and our hearts and sometimes even fight to not be conformed to the former lust, to be conformed to this world. Our former lust deals with unbiblical motives. It deals with the desires and lifestyles that we had before we were Christians, and we did all those things in ignorance. We didn't really know any different. Yeah, we might have had a concept of morality, right, from tradition, but we didn't really care as long as we got by, right, as long as, you know, as, long as we thought we were doing good. A lot of these things were ignorance, and then we became a Christian, and we realized, well, I can't really, I can't really, you know, smoke that weed kind of thing, and, you know, and get by with it, you know? <laughs> It's like, I don't, think, I, don't think God, I don't think God likes that very much, you know? You know, you have the, automatically, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit where it's like, man, I can't do that anymore. I can't, you know, have these posters and these, you know, these CDs. And it's just, all of a sudden, it's like, bam, something hits. Because God lives in us. And he teaches us these things by his spirit. We have his spirit. We have his word, right? And we, and we have, you know, the conviction of the Father, now, Peter says that we're to recognize these things. Those old things that we used to do, those old motives that we used to have, those old desires we used to have, we need to recognize those things and realize, hmm, that's not good. That's not the Lord. And so I'm not going to allow myself to be conformed back to those things. I'm not going to let myself go into those things. What are those things? Well, it's the example of the world. And, and, you know, and, and the world really wants to mold us into that. It's things like living selfishly, to live for personal gratification, to give in to the appetites and passions of the flesh, our old nature, to conform ourselves to the opinions and customs of what is popular, to make our sole purpose of life security, wealth, pleasure, pride, and fame. I mean, there could be more to it than that. But a lot of these things are things that drive the unbeliever. You know, that, that really, you know, give them the wind to, to press forward, all these things. But Peter says, hey, as a Christian now, by the indwelling spirit, as you walk with the Lord, you realize, oh, wait, that motive's not really from the Lord. Oh, that, that desire, that, that passion, that's not, that's not of God. We're to reject those things. Our world teaches us these things as the model for life. And they try to press us into their mold, and they teach us in order to be really successful and happy in life, you have to conform to these things, but we need to reject that influence. But rather, we need to look to God in verse 15. But he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And so rather than becoming more like the world or becoming worldly again, we need to become more like our God and Father. It's only reasonable that we should seek to become like God because he was the one who called us to the salvation he was the one who's, who, you know, who's given us eternal life. He's the one who's given us hope. It's our reasonable response. You see, because God is holy, we also must be holy. Now, the word holy means to be set apart, to be different. And this is actually one of God's divine attributes. God is absolutely holy. He's absolutely perfect. And he's also absolutely set apart from all evil and all sin. Well, now since we are his children part of his family, we also need to follow his example. And that means that we also need to be set apart from sin, set apart from evil. Now, we're not going to be totally perfect through and through, 
but yet we are to be set apart from this world in all of its evil. As the children of God, we're to imitate our Father. Now, the question arises, in a changing world, given into the philosophy of relativism, how do we know what is sin? What is evil? What is right and wrong? We all know what relativism is. We hear it every day. Well, that's right for you, and that's wrong for me. And what's right for me is right for me, but it might be wrong for you. Whatever it is, as long as we're all happy kind of thing. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible rather teaches an absolute standard for morality. Peter shows us this in verse 16. We look to the Bible, which is God's revelation of himself. Morality, which is what is right and wrong, finds its absolute standard in a holy God who is unchanging. And that's what sin is. Sin is an offense to God. It's offense to who he is and how he created mankind. All sin can be combined in those two things. Now, the Bible is an outflow of God's perfect revelation of himself. It's God's revelation of himself. And so, yes, all sin is an offense to God and how he made man, and those things are given in the Bible, which is God's revelation. And so the Bible teaches us what is right and wrong. And so 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It teaches us what's right and wrong. It teaches us how to please God. It teaches us about God and about his will for our life. So if we're to walk in holiness and please God, then we must abide in the word of the Lord and abide in God and not be pressed into the mold in the culture as the world changes around us. It's easy to, to do that, especially when the world, because of our moral stance on certain things, calls us bigots and narrow-minded and and, you know, things like that. And we think, hey, we're just trying to follow the Bible, you know? And so the world is going to continue to change. I mean, you know, some of you remember the world different 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, right? It's different. It's changed. It's growing progressively worse and worse. And it will, as the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, you know, as, as, as our world moves towards the apostasy and, um, and things like that. But we need to abide in the Word, stay grounded in the scriptures. Now, third, in verses 17 through 21, we see our motivation for holy living. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And so once again, the born-again believer has a personal responsibility to God. If we call upon God, who is our Father, meaning that we have this relationship with the Lord, well, then we also have a proper response to that revelation. We're to follow the Lord and we're to not abide in sin. Now, notice here it says in all of our conduct. Conduct means, you know, our behavior. And we're to recognize that God judges our conduct. He judges our behavior. Now, one day you and I will stand in front of the Lord, not to be determined whether we're going to go to heaven or hell. We're going to receive rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. That's a, a judgment in which the Lord rewards our conduct and judges us. But most scholars feel that this is actually just referring to the fact that we serve a holy God and he does judge, you know, he does judge our conduct now as we walk with him. Yes, we are children of God and God has forgiven our sins as, you know, as part, put it as far as the east is from, but yes, he does care about what we do, the, the thoughts that we think and the choices that we make. And we need to recognize that our God, our Father is a holy God, a holy Father, and we need to live life in light of that, thinking, Lord, I don't want to you know, displease you. 
I don't want to, you know, you know, hurt you or in, in any way or, you know, grieve you, you know, grieve your spirit, but I want to live holy in your sight because I know that you are concerned with me and how I love just as any parent loves their children and is concerned with how their children live. And if we're evil, how much more does God? And so God doesn't overlook our sin. He doesn't show partiality based upon anything, but he judges accurately and righteously. Now, the, the phrase that we're to live in fear throughout our time of our stay, our temporary um, sojourn here, comes really from the book of Proverbs. That's where we get a lot of the insight. And Peter, being Jewish, no doubt would have referred to the Old Testament from this. Proverbs twenty three seventeen says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all day. Proverbs eight thirteen, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. And so, no doubt, Peter, speaking to Jewish believers, probably Gentile believers as well, he says, hey, guys, you guys know what it is to walk in the fear of the Lord. You guys are pilgrims. You have a temporary stay here on earth. During your temporary stay, fear God. Hate evil. Stay away from it. Don't follow the example of the non-believer, but follow the example of the Lord. To live in the fear of God means to be separated. And, 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 you know, and this really will motivate us to, to follow the Lord. Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received from, by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your hope, or excuse me, that your faith and your hope are in God. So our motivation really is the great salvation that we have through the cross. Peter said, just think about it. No silver or gold, any religion, any tradition could accomplish the redemption that Jesus accomplished through the cross. Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was that spotless and perfect Lamb. God of very God. He was both God and man, born of a virgin. And there he lived his life in order to die, and he died specifically as a ransom in order to redeem us from our sin. The word redeem means to purchase from the marketplace. And so that, and that's really what the Lord did through his blood. He purchased our redemption. Each one of us had the debt of sin, had the curse of the law, which is eternal separation from God because of our sin, but yet the Lord paid our price. He died as our propitiation, which means he, has, he satisfied the righteousness of God. He died as our substitute, meaning that he died in our place for us. He died as our sacrifice. He shed his blood, and he reconciled us to God. All these things that we talked about in our series on the cross of Christ, but he's done all these things for us. And now Peter says, after knowing these things, how much more should we fear God and walk in holiness? So, wow, Lord, because you've done all this for me, how can I go out and then and live in sin? You know? And so that, that's what Peter is telling us here. We've been redeemed as, and set free. We can't then take our life and then put ourselves back into slavery of sin. It's contradictory on, on our joy and, and everything that the Lord has, has given us. And so, yes, we have a position in Christ. It's a glorious position. It's a position of being redeemed. It's a position of being a child of God it's a position of hope in which we have an eternal inheritance. All these things require a proper response, which is to live set apart for the Lord and His glory.